lot of these behaviors are really actually our, our kids' attempts to self-regulate. And so then when we treat them like they're being bad or not doing what we want them to do, we take away their coping strategies. And so that's really hard on a kid. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. This is the 100th episode, and I'm really excited to be doing something different for you guys for the 100th episode celebration. Uh, Sarah Wayland of Guiding Exceptional Parents and I are doing a live Q&A. Of course, this is pre-recorded for you on the podcast, but it is several parents joining us and asking questions and getting our insights and strategies all about behavior. So thank you to my friend Sarah and colleague for joining me and doing this Q&A. It is really just a wonderful way, I think, for us to connect with parents and to help them in the ways that, that we're super excited about, especially around behavior. Yep. Yeah, we can start with question one. Um, we had a couple of questions submitted to us before this live Q&A, and we want to go through those first, and then we will jump over, and we will talk to all the parents who are here joining us right now for the rest of their questions as well. So Julie L. wrote in, and she said, my 12-year-old son with autism and ADHD has become aggressive with my husband and I. We have tried consequences, punishments, and it's just not working. He is only doing this at our house, not anywhere else. What else can we do? Um, For me, I don't know about you, Sarah, but for me, the red flag in that question is that they've tried consequences and punishments, but they haven't tried anything outside of that. And you and I both know that traditional parenting and authoritarian parenting just doesn't work for our neuroatypical kids. And so we need to look at something beyond punishment and consequence. Um, As Ross Green says, behavior is just the symptom. Um, In his latest book, Raising Human Beings, he says to think about behavior as the fever. So it's the symptom that there's an infection. But if you only take Tylenol for the fever and you never take an antibiotic for the infection, that fever is just going to keep coming back and coming back and coming back because you didn't address the reason that it's happening. Um, And Sarah and I are both big Ross Green fangirls. And we, we definitely see a lot of value in his approach and what he's talking about. And, and that's really digging for the why, why is he aggressive? with Julie and her husband, why is this behavior happening? Then you can change that behavior because you're really working on the reasons behind it, right? Do you want to say some more about that, Sarah? 
Yeah, I, th- I like what you said about, um, you know, getting to the why, because I think that doing the detective work to figure out, you know, what situations is your your child acting out in? When is he losing it? And what are you asking him to do in those moments? Now, uh, the other thing that she mentioned is that it only happens at home and not elsewhere. And just to, it's so common. <laughs> it's so common for kids yeah. to do that, right? And it's it's partly because they feel safe at home, you know? So they're working so hard all day, every day, just to get through the day. And then when they get home, they can kindly, you know, kind of finally let their guard down. And then, um, and then you ask them to do something, maybe it's homework, maybe it's, you know, some chore or something you'd like them to do, take a bath, who knows, um, you know, that they, they find difficult for some reason, and they're just done. And so they don't have anything left to be nice to you. And their peers aren't there. So they're not feeling, you know, like they might humiliate themselves by letting you know how they really feel about doing the thing. So, um, you know, I think parents sometimes feel like their kids you know, kind of have it in for them because they lose it at home when in fact, it's almost the opposite, which is that they know their parents will still love them even if they lose it at home. Yeah, we're their safety net. Yeah. So it's okay. And I, what you said about them really working so hard to keep it together when they're away from home is really a very big clue. You know, they're drained by the time they get home. They have less ability, their bucket is empty. And they, you know, really then struggle when we challenge in some way that we think isn't really a challenge. It's not even maybe that they're asking him to do something that's difficult or uncomfortable. It's probably happening with, you know, ordinary run-of-the-mill requests, but he's just so raw by then that he can easily just break down. He doesn't have any reserves left to try to regulate and handle it. I think that's a big clue. Um, I think too, you know, just an authoritarian approach is not as helpful, you know, when you can be more understanding and really collaborating with your child and offering them a way to feel a sense of control, to feel a sense of, that they have some input in what is happening, it really shifts that tone for us, for sure. And I know many other parents, I think you would agree with that too. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and you know, I, the other thing, you know, we were just talking about getting to the, the underlying reason. I mean, sometimes, sometimes kids just, you know, I, I like what you said, you know, they just don't want to because they're done. Now, I'm guessing this parent was writing you know, right now, we're also dealing with pandemic, you know, quarantining and stuff. And so, you know, there's, there's sort of an underlying tension that our kids are certainly aware of right now. Um, And we as parents may not be at our best um, during this time. So if our kids are, you know, for some reason, their needs aren't getting met. I mean, I know one of my own kids is super unhappy about the fact that he can't see his friends. And he's really, really having a hard time right now. And so when I ask him to do the most basic, silly things like take a shower or brush his teeth, he just he can't do it because he's literally that depressed. And so, 
you know, if that's what's going on, I mean, just thinking about, you know, what might be happening with your child, you know, what's the sort of general tone around the home, you know, are, are you stressed out? Is your kid missing their friends? Are they, you know, is online learning working for them or not? Is, you know, are things structured well at your house or is it kind of a free for all? And does your kid need structure or do they prefer being able to direct their own activities? You know, all these things can play into it. It's so hard. Yeah. And our kids are, I think, overwhelmed and flooded with emotion right now, even if they're not showing it, even if they're not really talking to you about being worried or concerned about COVID, about having been stuck at home for a a lot longer than we thought, you know, that could certainly in and of itself trigger a lot of anxiety. Like I thought this was going to be over in two or three months and the whole world thought it would be over in two or three months. And now it's been six months or seven. I can't even keep count now. It's been so long (laughs) that it starts to feel like maybe it won't end for a lot of kids. I think they're starting to feel like maybe this is the new normal and it's not okay. You know, nobody is really okay with where we are because it was unexpected and it's so different. So I really think if this has started happening post coronavirus and pandemic, that it's probably a lot to do with that. If it's been happening before that, I think there's a lot more probably going on there and, you know, helping with regulation helping with calming activities, um, you know, talking and interacting with empathy and validation first. Those are all really helpful strategies to kind of soften, at least soften the edges so that you can interact a little bit better and try to be helpful in those moments. And then, of course, talking in between, having conversations about the aggression about how he's feeling when that happens, when everyone is calm, because then you can actually do some work on it. At 12 years old, you can really collaborate well with him on that. Depending on how much insight he has, some kids are not very insightful about what's going on. And so I, I think this is one thing that I'm, you know, as a parent, I realize that really my main job is to be a detective. And, you know, you know, just as an example, if it's always at the same time every day, you know, in the afternoon after they get home from school, so that might be a time that, that you know, a kid or they're done with their, their online learning for the day or whatever, or maybe it's right before dinner and it's a blood sugar drop, you know, or is it when you ask them to go to bed and they really don't want to go to bed? So trying to think about what's going on around the behavior is, is something you'll want to do. And, you know, think about what are you asking him to do? What time of day is it? Might he be hungry or tired? Um, you know, is his sister driving him bananas right now? Whatever, you know, these are all things to think about, you know, who's in the room when he gets upset. Um, yeah. And, and Penny, I did want to also just mention the empathy, the importance of empathy you know, if our kids feel like we care about how they feel, they're more likely to be willing to open up with us about what's going on for them. Yeah. And sometimes it's really not anything you as a parent could even possibly fathom. Um, but they have to feel like you won't judge them 
if they are going to offer that up. And that's why the consequences and punishments often can lead to making it harder to figure out what's really going on for that kid because the kid feels very not understood and they don't they might not think you care about what yeah what they're experiencing so that empathy it can be so helpful for a kid you know where they are screaming at you and telling you you know you're you're the meanest mom ever or whatever you know and you can just say wow you you are super frustrated right now and just say that, like, I can see how frustrated you are right now. Mm-hmm. Or I can feel. Yeah. I can feel how frustrated you are. I, I think we often get bogged down as parents in that judgment of the behavior. And we think if we don't approve of the behavior, or we don't even understand the behavior, that we shouldn't validate it. Right. They're really two different things. You're not saying to your 12-year-old, I'm so glad that you're on the floor kicking and screaming and (laughs) crying and throwing things with the reaction of, you know, a seven-year-old. You're not condoning the behavior. You're saying, wow, this is hard for you right now. You're saying that their feelings are real for them in that moment. And that is very powerful stuff. And later you can talk about whether or not the behavior was appropriate or the tone or, you know, their demeanor and really work through how they could handle it differently. But in those moments, it takes that validation and empathy, even if you completely disagree with what is happening, it's still real for your child. I just wanted to make that real real distinct clarification because I think we really do, we get bogged down in, well, this is ridiculous, right? This behavior is crazy right now. And yeah, it may be. And that's, that's a real valid feeling for you in that moment. But you also have to really validate for your child and what they are going through. That is their truth in that moment. That is true for them, even if it's crazy. Yeah. And, you know, I learned this from you, Penny, you you said, um, your child is not uh, giving you a hard time, they are having a hard time. And I think that it's so important to remember that that behavior is just telling you about how they're feeling inside. And one of the things that I'm always trying to remember is that one of the jobs of childhood is to learn to express your emotions appropriately. And young children just can't. They don't, they don't know how to appropriately express their emotions. And so, you know, one of the jobs of growing up is figuring out how to express your emotions appropriately. But what we don't want is we don't want to invalidate our children's emotions. We just want them to express them in a more appropriate way. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's a process. It's a learning curve. And our kids are developmentally delayed. So they are behind that process. They're behind that learning curve. And, and that real understanding, really seeing who our kids are and where they are, is the most valuable parenting tool. Because then we can respond appropriately. And I will say that phrase that you just attributed to me, I learned online somewhere. And I've never been able to nail down exactly who to attribute <laughs> it to. It's attributed to like 10 different people, but 
it is my parenting mantra. Like when things get hard immediately, that goes through my mind. That is my inclination now. You know, I've trained myself to think back to that phrase whenever I need it, whenever things are extra hard. And it has been so monumentally helpful. It's so helpful to look at your kids screaming and just losing it with emotion and be able to say, okay, it's because he's having a hard time. He's not doing this to me. He doesn't want to act this way. He's just struggling. And that that's super powerful. I mean, I think that's that's one of the big ahas and the big pivots for us. A big turning point was really understanding that and understanding that they're showing their emotion in the ways that they know how and that they're real for them, that they're completely their truth. Yeah. You know, when I teach my parenting class, I actually get Q-tips and I put them around um, to everybody's seat at the, on the very first day. And Q-tip stands for quit taking it personally. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a good reminder that your kid is really, they are trying, but this is about them. It really isn't about you. And so one of the things that is hard is when you have a little person losing their mind in front of you. And, you know, with a 12-year-old, they might not be so little anymore. And that can get scary because you think, wow, if they can't control their emotions now, like what, what's going to happen when they grow up and they do this, you know, in front of a police officer or something like, is something right. bad going to happen? And so that I think our own fear about how they're handling those big emotions can get in the way of us actually doing what we need to do to help them. Yeah, completely agree. It's, it's super hard, you know, to, to kind of tease all that apart and to remain disconnected almost, you know, I just had to train myself very early on to not take it personally. I could not take it personally because I was not going to be at all effective if I did. I was not going to be able to be objective. I was not going to be able to see what my kid was going through because I was going to get flooded with emotions and then my thinking brain was going to be cut off, right? (laughs) So we really have to think about what what's true for our kids is also true for us. Our brains work in a similar way. We can easily get overwhelmed by emotion. We can easily get caught up in it and not be able to really control um, what we say or what our behavior is sometimes. And and the trick is to, in in as many cases as possible, prevent that. You know, don't take it personally. Remind yourself your kid's having a hard time. And, and then you can have that sort of buffer that helps you to remain calm and be modeling the behavior that we want to see from them, modeling the reaction that we wish they had had in that exact moment for themselves. Yep. Christine has asked just one quick question. She said, my seven-year-old high-functioning ASD and ADHD son struggles on focusing in a classroom setting. He sometimes couldn't focus and pay attention to people when people talk to him. I've been signing him up for various therapies, OT, SLP, ABA, music therapy, and the therapists say they can improve my son's attention span. From your experience, do you feel like with various therapies, will that be helpful to improve his attention span? 
Sometimes I feel like I try my best in helping and he only has a longer attention span on topics that he is interested in or things that he likes. This makes it difficult when talking with grandparents and they usually ask, what did you do today? Or what did you eat for lunch? He has no short-term memory. I am going to throw this right over to Sarah because Sarah is much more schooled in different therapies, different treatment modalities to answer this question. But I will say that for us, OT was huge and having some sort of music in my son's life has also been really helpful, not necessarily music therapy. But Sarah, I want you to go ahead and answer Christine's question. So you'll have kids who do things like they'll bump into things all the time because they don't really know where their body is in space. And so they'll kind of bang into things and be like, ah, yeah, there's my shoulder. Oh, that's where my elbow is. Okay. So it looks like they're being hyperactive, but they're actually just trying to wake their body up. And so if that's the issue your son's dealing with, well, then OT can definitely help with that. Um, You know, ABA can teach your son the skills he needs to look like he's paying attention. Now, the question of whether he is actually paying attention is quite a different issue. But ABA can teach him things like, you know, how to uh, look at the person who's talking at you so that you can actually see their face. And that's usually helpful for understanding what's going on. But uh, a lot of times ABA will make you look pretty normal. And then it's still not, you're still not able to pay attention because your mind's still going a million miles a minute. So I I think that's one of the things, you know, but you know, teachers get less mad at you when you look like you're paying attention. So that's definitely a worthwhile skill. Um, And music therapy, music therapy is super interesting. There are all these auditory therapies like uh, listening therapy. So there's integrated listening systems, there's Stephen Porges's Safe and Sound Protocol. There's um, there's one that's a rhythm one. I can't remember what it is. Anyway, I'm just trying to think of it too. Yeah, uh, my son did therapeutic listening, which was a music therapy, and it really, really helped him. Like so much so that the teachers, I, I volunteered in the library in elementary school, and his teacher saw me in the library, and she came and she said, "What." did you do for your son? Like, that's huge. And uh, I was like, huh, must be the listening therapy. So, and, and for my other son, it didn't do a darn thing. So <laughs> I wish I could tell you like who it will help ahead of time, but I just can't tell you that. So, you know, thinking about those therapies, like one of the reasons you want to get a complete uh, diagnostic workup for a kid before treating for ADHD is that learning disabilities can make kids look like they're not paying attention when in fact the problem is they can't do the task that they're being asked to do. So, uh, you know, I think being a detective, so if you always see him acting out in math class, for example, maybe he's got math problems. You know, if it's always during written language assignments, maybe he's got dysgraphia. Like there are all these things that can look like attention problems that actually, you know, are due to something else. So, so anyway, those are just some thoughts I I had. I think avoidance can create that sense as well. I have a serial avoider for a child and he will, you know, it looks like he's not engaging, but in that instance, it's actually a choice, maybe subconsciously, but it's a self-preservation mechanism for one reason or another. So sometimes even 
it can look like inattention when really that's anxiety or it's them trying to, you know, avoid something that they perceive might be hard or painful. Um, we did one of those listening rhythm therapies at OT years ago when he was, I think, seven. I can't think of the name of it right now, but it didn't, we had no results. But music in particular, there are a lot of studies that show that it builds neural connections and requires some grit and perseverance if your child is learning to play music. I think there's a lot of skill and a lot of brain science, both that really can go into that and make it really helpful. You know, something else I just realized that's great about music is that they scaffold how they make, how difficult it is. Like it's very gradual. Like they don't just throw the kid into the deep end of the pool. They, they assume you can't play the drums when you first sit down in front of a drum set. So they, they teach you all the different you know, things you need to do. So they're really good. That's one reason I like music is because it just starts so simple and then they just make it more and more complicated. So I, I think that's wonderful. I wanted to mention too, hippotherapy. So horseback riding, therapeutic horseback riding is another one. One of the reasons this one's good is because of that pounding stuff, but you also have to uh, develop your core muscles to be a good horseback rider. And um, a lot of OTs will work on that core muscle strength, which oddly um, makes you have an easier time just sitting still in your chair. Mm -hmm. So some kids, if they don't have good core muscle strength, they kind of flop around like this. I remember I had a parent come up to me at a conference once and he had this really adorable video of his son with like seven other kids and they were sitting in a row on chairs and his son had no core muscle strength. And so this kid was just kind of leaning over on his friends and his dad was like, he's, he's aggravating them and he's irritating them by leaning on them. And the teacher, tells me I need to make him stop it was like this poor kid just has no core muscle strength like he just needs help (laughs) you know you know Penny you had that chair the little chair you introduced how to hug the how to hug chair how to hug is a terrible core like sitting in a how to hug chair just keeps you really nicely aligned those chairs are amazing and it gives you the squeeze for proprioceptive input and it leans, which then you can kind of wiggle a little bit. It was the number one most amazing tool in 11 years for him. The only thing that would make him like actually be able to just sit still and focus. He went from, you know, avoiding his reading homework, couldn't even last two minutes with me reading with him. And even still, he was literally standing on his head. I have this old video somewhere where he was probably eight. And he was sitting next to me, but he wasn't sitting next to me. He was on his head. His leg was kicking the wall. His arm was like doing this. Like he was just all over the place. And then we get this how to hug chair and he sits in it and he reads for 30 minutes. And before he even asked if his time's up yet, when all he really had to do was five or 10 and we could never make it through the five or 10 ever. It was amazing. It was just giving him all that input, the proprioceptive and all of the sensory that he really needed, plus the ability to kind of wiggle and squirm and rock. And it wasn't, you know, it's not like rocking in your chair that's stable. It's stable dust chair. It's meant to rock. It's okay to rock. Yeah. How to Hug is amazing. I've been singing their praises for years. 
we need to get an adult sized chair. I'm not sure they make they do one big they enough for Luke. I have one right adult, here in my office. I don't know if he's like giant man child now. Giant, yeah. He's almost six feet and he's a big, big, almost not kid. Um, so hopefully, Christine, we answered your question. If you have anything else, feel free. Uh, In the chat, you you said, usually how long can you see differences or improvements after signing up each therapy, for example, music therapy? I would say that really varies based on the therapy and the kid and the um, therapist that you're working with and the way that your child and the therapist have a relationship, you know, whether they're really gelling together or not. There's a lot of factors that go into that, but pretty much everything is kind of for the long term. Wouldn't you agree, Sarah? Absolutely. I think, I don't know about the rest of you, but I had these ideas that if I just threw everything at my kid, like early and just like made them do 7,000 therapies, I could fix them in a year or something like that. And that is just not been the case in any way, shape or form. So really the focus is I mean, I'll I'll say like speech therapy, my son, when he started it, his speech there is language levels were actually below the first percentile. So he had really terrible language. And when he graduated from high school and we kept him in speech therapy all the way from age five to age 19, and uh, he was up at the 75th percentile by the end of high school. But it was definitely a long haul. And part of the reason for that is because, you know, let's say your kid is at this level now and, you know, they're supposed to be at this level. So their peers are getting better and better. And so even if they get better at the same rate, they're always lagging behind their peers. And so the therapists have to keep working with them to to improve their skills. So that's, that's something that I did not realize early on and, came to grips with financially after a while. Yeah. I think OT is typically more of a short-term thing. Usually they'll set up a plan with two, three, four goals for where they want to get to. They'll kind of estimate how long they think that would take if it's weekly or bi-weekly appointments. And then of course you extend if your child hasn't reached those goals yet and you want to extend we actually did two different sets of OT. We did one when he was, I would say, six or seven for about a year. We worked on hyperactivity. We worked on um, some sensory stuff. We worked on handwriting. That was a huge one that went nowhere in a hurry um, or in a year. And we, um, I'm trying to think, that's pretty much it at that young age. Like he did a lot of crashing. And a lot of swinging because he was anti-swinging um, during that time. But then we went back when he was 10 or 11 and we did another, I would say, six to nine months. And we worked on planning and organization, emotional awareness and communication and regulation um, and more sensory stuff. He started working with the zones of regulation and started creating, you know, exploring different ways that he could regulate. So if he was in the red zone, they would try different things. They made cloud dough one week, they made a calming jar, um, a rice bucket. And we just kept really experimenting with all these different things and then keeping a list for him. Okay, if I'm in the red, this cloud dough really helps. Like that's my go to is the cloud dough. And so he would 
do that at that time, he would automatically, unless he was already off the cliff, he would go for some of those things to try to help him regulate because our kids want to be regulated. They don't, it doesn't feel good to be dysregulated. We all know that. And so they really do want to succeed at regulating. Sometimes they just don't have the skills or the tools or the strategies. And then if we see it as just behavior and we're just trying to change what's happening, we're still not giving them that piece that's really going to help them pull through and make some long-term adjustments. But I would say, you know, any therapy is a good six months or more to really see much from it, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I wanted to say that one of the things I've really started understanding more as my kids get older, and maybe it's because the field is changing and shifting, or I'm just more aware, I don't know, is that a lot of these behaviors are really actually our, our kids' attempts to self-regulate. And so then when we treat them like they're being bad or not mm-hmm. doing what we want them to do, we take away their coping strategies And so that's really hard on a kid. And so, um, you know, I definitely think that that's something to keep in mind. The other thing I wanted to mention is that, um, you know, these therapies are work for your kids. And so one of the things that I made the mistake of doing, I I mentioned a minute ago, was throwing everything at them, but it's exhausting. So these therapies are super tiring. So they're in school or daycare all day and the nursery school or whatever, and your kid was seven. So in school all day, and then I'm asking them to go do something that's super, super hard for them. And so they're just exhausted. So um, I I definitely regret like we did with my son. So there's evidence that the more often you do the intervention, the quicker the um, recoveries. Um, So I, I had him in speech therapy three days a week. And he was he would get home and he was just done. And we tried to add in occupational therapy while he was doing that intensive speech language therapy. And he just couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it because he was just, he needed some downtime. So I just wanted to mention that was our experience with both our kids actually, is I, I have a tendency to, you know, say, Oh, let's do all these things. And then, and then the kids like, I can't do any more things. (laughs) And it's exhausting for the parents too. It's not just our kids that are getting exhausted by all of that running around and trying to fix things. And we're in that fix it mindset, which doesn't even work to begin with. That's a completely wrong mindset for us as parents. It becomes really exhausting because we're pushing so hard. We're not gaining much traction. We're not seeing things get magically better like we thought they would. And and then that affects the whole family and it affects our kids. That's a hard lesson that I had to learn, and it took me several years to learn it, and people walking away from me in the house, not wanting to talk to me, because they knew all I would talk about was ADHD, and it was exhausting just thinking and talking about it all the time, so we really do have to be very careful about how much we try to do. You know, I I have been trying to balance, if we're doing a therapy, we need to do something fun also. So music lessons is what we've been doing lately so that every time we go somewhere and do something, it isn't this hard thing that they don't want to do too. You know, I don't want to send the message that every time I take you somewhere, it's, it's painful because then they're not going to want to do anything new because they won't know what to expect. 
So I think that's a big deal that we need to think about as well. Um, so I think we should open up for questions for everybody at this point. Are you good with that, Sarah? Yes. Okay. Who's got a question? Kristen, do you have a question? Where to start? Um, You're right. <laughs> in hindsight, how would you handle a balance between protecting and enabling? Because I relate to everything you just said, but from my end, he's in fourth grade and he's got the sub that scares him and he can't handle that with the skills he has now. How do I not enable an avoidance response? Yeah, it's hard because I look back at the same kind of thing and I felt the exact same way. I feel like I'm protecting him. it's never an excuse. It's an explanation. I try really hard to always say it's not an excuse for the way I acted, but it's an explanation that I was really trying to protect him from my fear of something even bigger and more embarrassing and more challenging at school happening, right? He's going to melt down. His peers are going to see him. He's going to get bullied more, you know, all these things that could easily happen. I mean, that could be completely factual. That could be totally the way that would play out, but it may also not. You know, I talk to my daughter has extreme anxiety all the time. And I say, you're deciding how this is going to go before you've even started. You've decided that this is going to be horrible before anything has happened. Exactly what I was doing, right? I was deciding that It was going to be the end socially. It was going to be the worst thing ever. He might even hit someone and that's not him. And I don't want him to be that, you know, and his therapist has really challenged us. We started with a new therapist about a year ago who actually does not have a background in ADHD or autism. His background is addiction and um, some polyvagal therapy, EMDR. He's got probably eight or 10 designations, but he, you know, he just comes from a different perspective in therapy, which has been super enlightening because I think we do get stuck in that place of saying, but you know, the sub makes it really hard for him to sit in this room and, and we're making explanations, not excuses, right. But we're, we're assigning reasons to pull back because of our own fear. Um, that episode with Dr. Nima that's going to publish um, this Friday, it'll be out by the time this episode is actually airing. He was talking about how, you know, so often when we get really keyed up about things with our kids, we need to step back and ask what it really says about us. And I realized that. I have really projected my own fears and my own childhood experiences on my kids. So, you know, I grew up with severe social anxiety. I still have severe social anxiety. And as a teenager, especially, I had to have all the brand name. I had to have what the cool kids, the popular kids had, which at the time and where we lived, everything that popular people had, had a label on the outside. So there was no faking it. You either had it or you didn't, right? And my parents could not understand why I needed to pay $70 for jeans when I could buy $20 jeans. And they were capable actually 
of giving in to my fears and helping me out there in that way, but they wouldn't because it was unnecessary and they, and I needed to learn that, you know, they could see that having things wasn't going to make me more popular, right? That that wasn't the the thing that was going to magically cure my social ails. So all through school growing up, I always was just so obsessed with looking like everybody else so that I would fit and they would accept me. And I have found myself over the years trying to buy my kids the clothes that the other kids are wearing. I will go out of my, and they have both said, I don't care. And I still will buy them the name brand stuff that I see. I even asked my neighbor a few years ago because she has a son that's my son's age in the same school and a son who was two years older. And I said, can you please tell me where your older son asked you to take him shopping and what you guys buy? Because I need to know what to get for Luke. Even though he didn't care at all what his clothes looked like. And that was my own fear. That was my own fear that if they didn't fit in with what they were wearing, they would get bullied, right? And that didn't teach them a good lesson either, right? It would have been better for us to just go with, yeah, your clothes don't matter that much. Um, it's hard. And I, you know, I can look back now and I can see so many times where my own fear, he, when we really had this conversation, it was right before, I would say two or three weeks before we stopped going to school in person in March. So maybe it was in February they were doing the SAT at school and he got there and he had forgotten it was that day and he just did not want to do it. And he started calling me and texting me. I can't do it. I'm not doing it. You have to come get me. I'm going to walk off campus, you know, just losing his mind about taking this SAT. And I kept trying so hard not to go pick him up. You just need to take it. Just fake it. It doesn't matter what your score is. Just sit there and get it done well, I'm going to have to sit here the whole time that all the other kids who get extended time take, and they all take their time, and I don't take my time, and now I'm going to have to sit here for hours. And, you know, it's this barrage of fears that he was having and discomfort. And so finally, 30 minutes after the test had already started, there was no way he was taking it. They wouldn't let him. And the assistant principal finds him in the hall and says, yeah, you can go home. I go and pick him up. And we happened to have a therapy appointment a couple hours later. And his therapist was like, he leans into me and he says, well, what was your fear that was going to happen? I'm like, me, what are you talking about? My fear? He's like, yeah, if you just would have left him there, what do you think was going to happen? And, and then pose the same thing to him. If your mom didn't come get you, what, what could have happened? And then the conversation went to, well, what could you have done? And, and then in this calm moment after he's already gotten out of this painful, uncomfortable experience and environment, he's able to list all sorts of things he could have done. I could have just sat there the whole time. I could have just bubbled everything, whatever. He could have just not done it and nothing would have happened. But he couldn't think about that because he was so activated and he was so persistently trying to just get out of that situation. And I'm sure that many, many other kids of families who are listening and are here have the same experience, but I feel so blindsided by this stuff. Like this was not on my radar a year and a half ago, 
but that's what part of what was happening. Go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, you know, another thing that um, I've learned, because <laughs> I'm, I'm guilty of the same. I mean, I think that's what, you know, as parents, we don't want our children to suffer. Right. But unfortunately, part of growing up and part of learning to deal with disappointment and to deal with hard things is getting through it and living through it. And so yeah. one of the things I've been saying to my son when he has these panic attacks is I say, I know this is really hard. I can see how hard it is for you but I have faith that you can figure it out. Yeah. And just let it go at that, you know, and try, try really hard to not rescue him. But saying that I have faith that he can do it, you know, I I think sometimes, you know, that's, that's, I worry about that message that I'm giving my kids when I rescue them all the time is that I don't have faith that they can get through it. And so (laughs) hindsight is 2020. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you know, there's plenty of brain science now that shows that when you experience something that's difficult and you get through it, it wires your brain to be more resilient, to have more grit, to try the next time you're uncomfortable. But if you always avoid, you're not getting those new neural connections. Your brain is still sounding that alarm usually faulty alarm instead of saying, Oh yeah, you know, last week I did this thing and I felt kind of the same way, but I got through it and I was fine. And I think I can do it again now. You know, that's where we really lack right now is any sort of grit and resilience. The second something is harder than playing video games. He's like, he's out, he's done. It's hard. And, And again, back to your question, Kristen, I feel like I will probably still make some enabling mistakes and rescuing mistakes. I think I know more now in order to be able to tell myself, okay, I feel like I'm rescuing him, but I'm actually not building the skill that he so desperately needs. And I need to really allow him to build that skill. So instead of I'm failing him and I'm bailing and I'm leaving him in this awful position. And it's going to be so terrible. It's he's learning something that he really desperately needs from this. And if there's a giant meltdown, then you go and pick them up because they're not going to be able to function the rest of the day anyway. Right. But it's hard. Of course we want to avoid that. We don't want our kids to struggle or suffer So I can't, I have no answer is what I'm trying to tell you, Kristen. I have no answer. We just do our best, right? And the more we learn, the better we do. Sarah. And another thing I do, I want to say is sometimes they really do fail and they fail colossally. And the process of getting through a colossal failure is also a learning opportunity. So absolutely, just doing something and really messing it up. And then you get up the next day and the sun still rises and yep. friends still like you and, you know, whatever, like, yeah, you messed up and it was pretty bad, but it's going to, you're, you'll get through it. So sometimes getting through it is not successful. <laughs> sometimes this you right. know, getting through it is failing and then picking yourself up and dusting yourself off and trying to, you know, recover from that. And I I think one of the things that happens, it's so hard when you have a kid with a disability, because the fact of the matter is they do colossally fail a lot. 
and it has a huge impact on their self-esteem. And so we start thinking, oh my gosh, if I could just help them a little bit, just experience success just once, like that would be a good thing. And it is a good thing. So the other piece of this we haven't even talked about, but it's one reason I think video games are so addictive is that those video game designers carefully scaffold everything. It is the just right amount of challenge. It's hard, but you can do it. And real life doesn't scaffold things that way. And so what you have to figure out is how can I make this situation one that's hard, but my kid can get through it and actually experience success. And I think we are often accused of being helicopter parents for rescuing our kids all the time, but that's because the world is not scaffolded correctly for our kids. And that's a real problem. And I don't know what the answer to that is. I really don't. This is one reason I'm actually a fan of homeschooling is because you can scaffold things, you know, at the level that's appropriate for a kid. Really good teachers do it automatically, but not every teacher is experienced enough to be able to do that. So... I think you have to rescue sometimes too. If we never rescue, then they start to think we don't care. I mean, there are times when, right. They feel like they have nobody in their corner. So, you know, it's a balance between showing them that we care, that we have their back, that we want the best for them, but also pushing them in these little increments, challenging them to go a little further when something is uncomfortable or might go wrong, you know, my son will start backpedaling and avoiding before he even knows if anything is going to be awful or not. He just doesn't even want to put himself out there in case it might be uncomfortable or painful. I had a huge aha when Sarah was talking about video games because my son has this issue with needing to buy stuff in the games all the time. And he, you know, this is the reason we went to therapy in the first place. And at this juncture, it was the reason we started going to this therapist. And he has figured out and talking with him for a while now that it's a lot of social. It's if I buy these things, I'm going to be accepted by the other players. But it's also, I think, and this is what I just learned from Sarah, is that it's easier sometimes to buy the thing that gets you through the hard part of the game. So even in video games, he's avoiding discomfort and, and the fear, I think, of not succeeding. Wow. I think this is one reason kids love watching Let's Play videos. I, I don't know if this is something your kids do, but mine watch Let's Plays. You're watching somebody else do the oh, game yeah. successfully, right? You I don't, don't understand it at all. No, you don't have to figure it out. They're just, you know, they do it for you. So yeah. again, it's a co- you get to have the fun of the game and the thrill of mastering it without having to actually do it. So mm. Penny, we have another comment in the chat. Yeah, I was just saw that too. I'll read it out. Gail had asked, my son is 12 and is a 2E kid. So twice exceptional with ADHD. One of the biggest challenges that we have with our son is he absolutely hates the word no. The craziest thing is it can be over the smallest thing and happens all day, every day. We give other options to him to choose from, but he is extremely persistent on what he wants. It's usually over him wanting to eat fast food or foods with a lot of sugar. I try to be mindful of how often I use the word no 
and remind him of his other options, but that seems to make him just frustrated and angry. I set clear limits and boundaries so there are no gray areas, but he will continue to argue to try to get his way. Sounds like you're describing my kid. (laughs) I try to be flexible with options, but he is definitely not flexible. Any advice? I feel so overwhelmed and drained because it always ends up with him saying really mean, hurtful things to us. It doesn't matter how many times a day we say yes to what he wants. He holds on to the things that we say no to. Help, please. Oh, yeah, been there, done that. I, I actually did an entire podcast episode on saying yes more, trying to not say no all the time. Because I realized that it's a reflex. A lot of times we don't even consider before we say no. And so there typically is some way that you can hold firm on your value or your boundary, but also kind of say yes. And what I mean by that is to say yes when you do this, yes if this, yes if you choose from these choices that I outline. Yes, a different day. Or yes, you can have a sweet snack, but it has to be this one. Or, you know, we can still guide within the values and boundaries that we set for our families, but still kind of give that guidance in a different way than just constantly saying no. But the word no is also a huge trigger for many, many kids. And with us particularly, but I've seen this in other families too, my son can't see more than one way. So if I say no to something, he can't imagine an option. He can't imagine that we're not going swimming with his friend today, but we are going tomorrow. It's just all he sees is that this path of expectation that he had has been cut off. and. It's a lot of inflexible thinking um, and inflexibility, which I find really difficult to not only to keep my own sanity and stay calm myself, but also to try to help to build more flexibility is difficult as well. But it is completely possible. I'm sure Sarah can give us more wisdom from Monica Werner, right? Monica Werner, we had her on the summit last year, year before last and in 2020, she's going to be and talking. She will about be on the next one. Flexibility, flexibility, because we said somebody has got to cover this topic on the summit. Yeah. So, if you want to offer some additional insight, Sarah. So, I, I have to say one thing that really struck me about your post, Gail, is this thing about sugar and fast food. I I feel Carbs. like there are some kids who just there's something about those carbs that are like super uh, rewarding and they just crave them. And it is so hard to kind of get over that hump. So I, I just wanted to acknowledge how hard that is. I mean, I had my son had this friend for a while who he was totally like that, like just all about the carbs, like you said, Penny, like just all about the carbs. And his parents literally had to lock their refrigerator and their pantry because he would break in and like just eat carbs constantly. And he was skinny as a stick. 
And so I was just like, where are all those calories going? And it just, he craved them. And it was a craving that was way beyond hunger. Like there is just something really crazy about that. So I, I just wanted to acknowledge that and say, I have no easy answers for it. <laughs> Sugar is very stimulating. You know, I mean, there's science well, to back yes, that. that. It's very stimulating. Nuts. Yeah. And for kids who, who lack as much as someone who's neurotypical, they just go after whatever it is. And with carbs too, a lot of times they're crunchy or they're chewy. So they're getting that oral motor stimulation, you know, that sensory stimulation. My son is the carb junkie who eats everything in the entire kitchen every day. I have not locked everything up because I feel like that. I, I don't know. To me, that's not very helpful. They find it somewhere else. Yeah. That's the thing. They're so driven and they get so yeah. fixated on it. It's very, very hard. Uh, my husband hides his junk food. And my son will keep searching in our bedroom, in our closet, and even in my husband's car in the driveway. He will find it and he will eat it. That's so funny. That's so funny because we have the same exact thing in our household. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if we bring it in the house and they see us eating it, then how can we, you know, like, and it's, and I'm guilty of it too. I'm like, if you guys would go out buy in the chips and the ice cream, I wouldn't have to sit here at night and eat them while I watch TV. If you just didn't bring it in here, but you know, everybody wants to make their own choices. And so, yeah, there's this whole diet Coke stealing thing that goes on here. That's just exhausting, but yeah, I, I they, try not, I try not to buy it, but if I do take him to the store with me, it's like a sensory overload. I don't know what happens. Yep. And just start throwing the stuff in the car. He's uncontrollable. And I'll try to rationalize with him and say, okay, pick one. Pick one ice cream. Pick one. And, uh, and okay, if you're going to have the ice cream, no candy bars. You know, I try right. to be flexible, but it never seems to be enough. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really tough. It's tough. It's tough. I will tell you that I actually stopped taking my kids shopping with me for a while because the frontal lobes really do start connecting up eventually. (laughs) They really do. So my kids actually can control themselves now that they're older. But there was a period of time where what you're talking about, yes, that's absolutely would be like what happened in the grocery store. And everybody's like, well, they have to learn these skills. I was like, you know what, they can (laughs) learn it later. Because it's not working right now. And and I mean, yeah. they just don't have that impulse control to be able to do that. So if you just don't have it in the house, then they can't eat it, right? And so, you know. <laughs> Except for but when then they go to high school. The block. <laughs> right. Or they go to a friend's house or that. Like, it's just, it's there. It's hard. It's hard to, I'm trying to teach him to everything in moderation, but I feel like anytime I try to teach, it's just not, it doesn't work very well. And so I just stop talking. I just say, okay, I understand, you know, you having a hard time with this and, you know, eat the ice cream because when it's gone, you know, I'm not going back to the store, right. You know, anytime soon. So just take a little bit every day, but nope, he'll sit there and eat the whole pint. And then Mr. Softy will come down the block tomorrow because we live in New York. 
they'll be seeing this as off the every day <laughs> and there'll be a huge meltdown. So it's just, yes. I let the meltdown happen because I'm not going to buy more ice cream. <laughs> yeah. My, so it, it's hard. My friend who actually has this miracle solution for when your kid is totally losing their marbles on you um, because <laughs> you're setting a limit, which is she's, and, and it works so well as you go, Oh, you can't have that ice cream. That's super disappointing. And then they're like, yeah, and you won't let me have it because you're a big meanie. And, and, and she just says, she just says, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I do that sometimes. Yep, yeah. I'm the worst mom. Let's go. Yeah. It's infuriating yep. and there's nothing to respond to in it because you're not saying no. Right. So it, it, it's in some cases can help. So I have found it very helpful, but I know for some kids, they would just make them matter. <laughs> Yeah, and I think then, it gets and then they, better some. They move on to the next thing that they know you're going to say no to, which is, you know, just could be anything. Could be rating yeah. our movies. It could be video games for six hours. It could be anything. <laughs> well, and the forbidden fruit truly is the sweetest fruit, right? I mean, that yeah. Yeah. is the case. I have to tell you, my younger son... <laughs> Since the age of five was really into Super Smash Brothers, which I did not allow in my house because it was rated for kids 13 and older. And so I was like, nope, we're not doing that. We're just not doing that. Well, let me tell you, for eight years, he was fixed on Super Smash Brothers, never gave up on it. When he turned 13, I said, okay, you can get Super Smash Brothers now. He has never played it. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> he just needed an ending to that story. He needed to conclude it. <laughs> Amazing. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. We we have a lot of those conversations. Well, I'm gonna be 18 soon, mom. Yeah, don't remind yeah. me. I know you're still not making the best choices. But I will say, like those those instances in the store, they get easier as they get older. My son, almost 18, still will ask me for everything he sees as we walk through the grocery store but he will accept the answers that I give. And I do always let him choose something. And sometimes right. I'll say, okay, I'm going to get chips. Which kind do you want to choose from these two? Or, you know, I mean, I never just say no all the way through the store because he probably would still completely freak out or find another way to get it. But he handles that no so much better than he did at age 12, for sure. You just reminded me of something I used to do with those grabby moments, which was I, my kids got an allowance and I, I they could spend it on whatever they wanted except Super Smash Brothers. But um, <laughs> they could spend it on, you know, anything they wanted, including candy or, you know, or a video game that was something I approved of or, you know, whatever. And I didn't say anything about how they spent that money. So if they wanted to buy Apple Jacks, okay, you can have Apple Jacks, you know, 70 boxes of Apple Jacks, whatever. Um, and uh, what was nice about that is that it gave them control. So I would say, hey, I'm going to the grocery store. You know, do you want me to buy some ridiculous sugar bomb for you? You know, it, <laughs> it will cost, you know, whatever amount and that'll come out of your allowance. And they're like, okay, yeah, yeah I would like that. Or no, I wouldn't like that. Cause they were funny about money. They did not like spending their own money. <laughs> so yeah, of course, if that would work for you, but it, it definitely helped with that grabbiness thing. But I have to say there's a quality to what you wrote here that just feels like they're, 
it, it's like an obsession. I, and, and that there's something about that that, and it, it definitely goes with ADHD. I've seen it in a, in a number of kids with ADHD. This sort of obsessive, you know, I need to have this quality, and I really think age helps with that. But it, it's just super hard, super super hard. And it's often a coping mechanism. You know, my son struggles with too many in-game purchases. He takes money from us without asking in order to make them. It's this whole thing. And we sought out this new therapist and, you know, it's a whole thing. And it's because he doesn't feel great about himself. He doesn't feel great about what his experiences have been. So in trying to cope with that and better that, he's created all these unhealthy ways to do it. And so many people in our culture eat out of emotional distress, right? Myself included. And my first coping mechanism is either chocolate, ice cream, or potato chips. And if I ate salty, I have to have sweet right after and vice versa. So it's really bad. But, you know, we all have different coping mechanisms and sometimes they're unhealthy. And I would say probably just about everybody has at least one unhealthy coping mechanism as an adult, as a neurotypical adult. And so I find that some of this obsession, this obsessive sort of compulsive feeling behavior is just trying to make something else better and trying to make themselves feel better because they're feeling bad from these other sources, school or socially. Yeah. And it makes Makes total sense. And it's really hard to deal with, especially you know, at 17, when you start figuring that out. So the earlier, the better for sure. But I think that it's like these unhealthy ways of coping meets this propensity to be obsessive and compulsive and completely impulsive to a clinical level. And it just makes this perfect storm where they feel out of sorts and they're just grasping for anything. Um, there have been some articles written to you about ADHD and carb addiction. I don't think there's any real scientific studies behind that, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that a lot of people with ADHD are carb addicted, which yeah, creates a metabolism thing too. Like, I mean, could be, yeah. You know, they just have this crazy metabolism. And they, like, I mean, I'll just I'll use my younger son as an example. He does have ADHD, and he eats a ridiculous amount of food and uh and he doesn't weigh anything i'm like I where say, he's still stick thin he is stick thin then he knows he's super super skinny and his brother eats about half of what he does and he's not as thin so you know metabolism really does change things yeah it can you know for us i i and i can look back at pictures you could count his ribs from across the room when he was nine, 10 years old, as soon as he hit puberty, all he did was eat. And he went in a couple years time, he gained a foot and about 70 or 80 pounds. Because that metabolism, something with puberty, just turned that completely on its head. And now we have the opposite weight issue that we've been trying to deal with. And when you're a carb addict and you're obsessed with junk food and you're, you're compulsive 
and really determined and you're going to find it. And then when you find it, you have to eat it all because mom and dad might hide it tomorrow. It creates this kind of storm of struggle with, you know, I think a lot of weight issues in our country are, are just unhealthy coping mechanisms and anxiety and emotional things. And, you know, I know that if I didn't eat my emotions, I'd probably be a different body type. So I, wanted, I, I did want to say something about um, uh, the, the thing you said about crunchy foods and mm-hmm. just activating the, these uh, nerves in your face. So polyvagal theory uh, that <laughs> activates the, the, uh, the part, the brain networks that actually help you regulate. And so right. um, this is one reason I actually literally keep chewing gum sitting here next to my desk because when I want to eat, uh, usually it's because I'm getting nervous about something. And so I just chew gum instead, but something to just get those muscles and your teeth going, there's something super satisfying and self-regulating about that. So younger kids, one reason they bite is because it's actually a self-regulation strategy because yeah. you're, you're engaging those muscles. So if you can figure out a way to do that, it, it can be a self-regulating strategy. So thank you. I just wanted to mention that because the crunchy stuff is brilliant for that. Yeah. And my son, actually, he chewed a lot of gum and then he, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough resistance. So he started chewing you know, rubber sorts of things. And then that turned into Legos because like he just kept building a tolerance to the level of resistance, I guess. Like we have vacuumed and he's actually stopped finally, thank goodness. But for three or four years, he was doing this. He would just sit at his desk and play on his computer and chew Legos. And there would be literal little mountains of tiny little flex of chewed lego in a mountain on the floor next to his chair because he needed that input and for a kid who needs all that proprioceptive input but really likes to sit still on the computer and play games with his friends he need you know he wasn't getting it by moving around so he was chewing oh it's a miracle his teeth are decent it's a it's a miracle it's a miracle. They've never said anything at the dentist about his teeth looking like he's chewed something crazy or anything. I'm like, wow, he has cavities because he doesn't like to brush. But the chewing of Legos was fine, apparently. But yeah, that's a big thing. We've tried like, so if we get gum now, he puts five, six, seven pieces in there. Here's a little trick. You can make the gum harder by breathing in over the gum that's chewed up and that makes it a little harder and then it's harder to chomp on. Mm. I mean, I even researched like harder gum. (laughs) It was harder, but I couldn't find anything. Yeah. But I think that's where the overeating comes in too. So now if he's not going to chew on those other things, he's just going to eat food instead. It's, It's not awesome. It's not awesome, but right. (laughs) He'd probably try it. He'd be very (laughs) offended, but then when nobody was looking, he might like be like, I wonder wonder if mom's on to something here. (laughs) Poor kid. Poor kid. Anyway, well, thank you guys. We will sign off and um, 
hope to see everybody somewhere in the virtual universe soon. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, parent coaching, and mama retreats at parentingadhdandautism.com.